Gar and I, as you know, as we sit here together and, and talk about this, we, we understand accountability and we are accountable for what this team did this year. We don't run away from it. We accept it. Uh, that's that's on us. Locked on Bulls, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, a show for the most passionate fan base in the NBA. Your number one source for Chicago Bulls news and stories. For me to be here in the NBA organization, such a historic organization that Chicago Bulls, so it's just a dream come true for me. Live on Dash Radio every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. This is going to be a process. It doesn't, you'll snap your fingers and it all happens at once, but um, that's the plan moving forward. So kick back, relax, and get ready for the best hour of your day. Locked on Bulls starts now. Here are your hosts, Jordan Malley and Matt Peck. What's up and welcome into Locked On Bulls, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. We're live on Dash Radio, DashRadio.com and the Dash Radio app. On the Nothing But Nut channel, we're live on Dash Radio every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central Time. That's tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central Time. I'm your host, Jordan Malley, writer of Bulls basketball in the NBA at FanRag Sports. And college hoops over at SB Nation, along with me is Matt Peck, writer of Bulls basketball in the NBA at FanRag Sports, and the host of the 312 show on AM 1590 WCGO here in Chicago. Follow us on social media on Twitter at Jordan C. Malley, at Bulls underscore Peck, and at Locked On Bulls. Like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Locked On Bulls, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you find podcasts, you will find us. Make sure you're following the Locked On Podcast Network on Facebook and Twitter as well. 331-979-1369 is our text and voicemail line. Save that number in your phone as Locked On Bulls and interact with us whenever you listen to the show and wherever you listen to the show. 331-979-1369 is the line to call and text. You can always hit us up on social media as well. Matt, what's going on? A little little uh, two-day hiatus here for us at Locked On Bulls. Feel like uh, we needed it though. After a after tons of draft information, the combine setting in, we had to take a little bit of a break. But we're back here on Friday for a fresh episode. Want to get into? You just, you just couldn't. Uh, you just couldn't live to do a show without <laughs> me, right? You just missed me too much. Couldn't <laughs> contemplate the idea of doing a show without me. That's you know, what it is, right? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Nobody wants to hear my ass talk for 45 minutes no. by myself. I'm, I'm sure our <laughs> listeners were, you know, a couple people I saw on Twitter were like, hey, like, no locked up Bulls the past couple of days. So thank you to those of you who actually missed us for a span of 48 hours. I'm sure there were plenty of people who were like, right, well, I, you know, Jordan and Matt have been bickering at each other about all sorts of draft talk recently. I, I'm glad. Like, you know, let's all take a break. Let's all have some space. Let's let's reflect. Let's give ourselves some time. And uh, hey, here we are, a Friday episode, back in the saddle to get things going. Um, if at some point I just go completely silent on the on the mic, it means that I have expired. Uh, I am so insanely sleep deprived right now after my cross country road trip. Um, so if at some point my mic cuts out, it's actually I think that I have just died. So please send somebody to pick up my corpse. Yeah, we know something's really wrong when you start talking about do- potentially donating to a second billboard here in Chicago for <laughs> Bulls front office or something along those lines. We know something's really wrong, but we wanted to get to all of you guys' questions again. It's really driven our content over the last couple of weeks, and we really appreciate it. Like we said, you can hit us up at 331-979-1369. It's bringing up really good discussions, so we felt like Friday seems like a good opportunity to take uh, on all the questions that you guys sent over the last 48, 60 hours or so, as well as some voicemails too. So hit us up if you want to leave us a voicemail. We'd love it. We'd love to play those on the show, and we feel like we get 
pretty good response from it too as well so hit us up there we're going to take all the questions but before we do that got to touch a little bit on these NBA playoffs because I think Matt at the beginning of the the week we talked about how even though both series were tied at two going in and playing a potential you know best of three in both series you know we said like the margin of victory in those in those four games on both sides were I think the the smallest margin of victory was 12 before some of these other games that we had. So we were talking about blowouts and saying, uh, I don't know, like, the, yeah, the playoffs have been good. Yeah, the series are tied, but really the games haven't been all that good. And I think that's kind of changed over the last couple of days. What did you think about the Rockets and the Warriors series as well as the Celtics and the Cavaliers? Yeah, it's it's awesome that we finally got uh, some, some closer games as these series have both moved on. Uh, you know, two very late uh, deciding finishes between the the Rockets and Warriors. And it's funny, after all the talk about everybody saying, well, you know, here we go, Cavs-Warriors part four in the finals. And then coming into the playoffs, it's like, well, maybe, like, not so fast. Like, this young Philly team looks good. Boston looks good. Out in the West, the Rockets are the one seed. Uh, You know, who knows? The Warriors were kind of limping into the playoffs with a few different injuries and here we are the Cavs and the Warriors are the two teams that are down three to two facing elimination and for all of the talk about oh my gosh I like we like we're so sick of Cavs Warriors in the finals what do you bet that the NBA is praying that both of the teams that are down three to two right now find a way to win both games six and seven because, you know, no knock on how much of a following the Boston Celtics have. They're a big market team. They have a big following. And, you know, no knocks on the Houston Rockets. They've been a fun, interesting team all season. They have a couple of superstars in their own right and Harden and CP3. But if, if, if the finals are Celtics-Rockets, can you imagine how low those ratings would be compared to Cavs-Warriors, even though it would be Cavs-Warriors part four? Because there's no LeBron. And there's no Steph and KD and the Warriors, who are now like the largest following in this league right now. Yeah, I'm with you. I think with with the Rockets and the Celtics, like taking nothing away from both of those fan bases, obviously the Celtics being a historic team in the NBA, but you're totally right. Like people outside that are the casual basketball fan too, especially when you're tuning in to the NBA Finals. The Warriors are obviously for the Millennials, the ones that are casual fans. The Warriors are the most fun to watch. I think most people can agree on that. And then at the same time, you've got the huge following in the superstar in LeBron. Like, as crazy as it sounds, and, you know, basketball heads are going to say, oh, well, the ratings won't dip. You know, there's still interesting storylines if Houston wins, if the Celtics win, and that ends up being the NBA Finals. But really, like, LeBron has this this incredible way of 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 a following that I don't think I've ever seen before, not only just from diehard fans, but also people who may not watch basketball at all or just a casual basketball fan. Like LeBron has that ability to draw people in and want want you to watch. And I feel like the Golden State Warriors have that similar draw. And I think you're right about that being Rockets, Celtics, potentially in a finals. While I feel like people are still going to watch, the ratings aren't going to be nearly as high as they would if it was Warriors and Cavaliers. And obviously those are still on the table. And with Chris Paul now missing game six, being out for that, that's going to make things really interesting. Could potentially see a game seven there. Um, and then on that... Pot- s- potentially. <laughs> Dude, book it. That game seven is happening. <laughs> Draymond Green guaranteed it before we got the news on CP3, and I would have believed that guarantee even if Chris Paul 
was playing in game six. Can you, the Warriors losing a game six that is, you know, winner go home on their own floor? No, no. I mean, I would, I don't, I don't like putting money on, on basketball games, but I, if there's anything close enough to a sure thing that I would put money on it, it's the Warriors forcing a game seven. I want to ask you something real quick that happened, I think, in it was game four. Um, game four, that last 30 seconds run where Steve Kerr decided not to call a timeout and round eight, eight to nine seconds left in the game and they took that terrible shot in the corner and Kevin Durant gave up the ball, gave up the opportunity to score and I think I think it was crazy and there was a, a bunch of criticism towards like why, why would Kevin Durant give up the ball in that s- scenario and also kind of I was arguing with somebody saying, you know, why, I don't understand why Steve Kerr didn't take a time out there with eight seconds left to try and draw up a play and obviously I get the, the argument about well, dude, you've got Draymond Green, you've got Steph Curry, you've got Klay Thompson and Kevin Durant. Do you really need Steve Kerr to drop a play for your four superstars out there on the floor? I get that, but still, it kind of blew my mind that not only did KD give up the ball on a shot that could be a game tire going into overtime, but then it just looked like the Warriors had no idea what they were doing with eight seconds left, and they took a terrible shot at the end. And then how about the foul call, too? Like, come on, seriously? Like, a foul with 0.3 seconds left to potentially give them an opportunity down the floor to take a shot, like at the end with Steph Curry. I thought that was a little ridiculous as yeah. well. Do you think Steve Kerr should have taken a timeout in that point, or was it you know I mean, the way the rolled the way the dice rolled? The, the foul call is one thing, but to me, that's been the biggest surprise of either of these conference finals so far. Is that the Warriors, particularly in the fourth quarter of these recent games, look offensively inept lost I mean you were talking about the fact that they have all these different guys on the floor who can create their own shot but ISO basketball is not what the Warriors do they move the ball and they move without the ball and that is the beautiful offense that you know as you were saying millennials have fallen in love with this version of basketball and the NBA because of what the Warriors have done over the reign of this Steph, Clay, Draymond group, and now adding KD. That's how they play basketball, and that's how winning basketball has looked in recent years. But that's not the way that the Warriors have played, particularly down the stretch of these last couple of games. You mentioned KD. In his own right, he absolutely is the superstar who should not be afraid to take the big shot late. We saw him do it in Game 3 of the Finals last year. Just, you know, casually strolling down the court, burying a three in LeBron's face to take the commanding 3-0 lead in that final series. Like, KD's made those big playoff shots before. He's not afraid to take them. But he's been awful in the fourth quarter. I think I saw online earlier this morning, KD's fourth quarter stats are like three points, 21% shooting, and 11% shooting from downtown in the fourth quarter of these conference finals games. That is, you can't have that. And then the other thing that people are talking about is that through five games of these conference finals, Kevin Durant collectively has 10 assists. 10 assists through five games, and you're considered by and large to be the second best player in the world right now. Yeah, that can't happen. Kevin Durant is absolutely scorer first, facilitator second, compared to at least the mentality of how LeBron approaches the game. It's a little bit flipped. Kevin Durant is a scorer. But that does not excuse the fact that he is just not getting any looks for his teammates 
And the Warriors have had fewer than 20 total team assists in both of these games that they've just lost, game four and game five. Kevin Durant not doing his part on that. It was like the Warriors only had fewer than 20 assists a handful of times over an 82-game season. And they just did it in back-to-back playoff games. I, I Like, what What the hell is going on with the Warriors and their offense? It's It's crazy. I just think it's pretty crazy, too, to think about, like, if you had to pick anybody in the NBA to take a shot, a two-pointer, two, to tie the game and to get, to send it to overtime, like, outside of LeBron, I'm probably picking KD second, right? And to pass up that shot, like, I don't understand. From a superstar standpoint, I don't understand why you pass that shot up. Like, you're the guy that 95% of the time can hit that shot. You can shoot over anybody. And you had eight seconds to run something in order to get yourself open. And more times than not, like Kevin Durant, like outside of a few guys on the Rockets, shooting over everybody. And so I just, that blew my mind that he passed it off and really left Clay Thompson in kind of a shitty position. Um, outside of that, though, they got lucky. And, you know, it's pretty funny. Like they gave Steph Curry an opportunity with a wide open shot in the corner. Uh, to potentially take that game. Uh, but you're right. Like It's crazy how bad the Warriors have, have played maybe in this series in the fourth quarter, and especially a lot towards Kevin Durant. And while a lot of people were making fun of Steph Curry and saying, you know, I, we talked about it earlier too, saying maybe he's potentially still hurt. I think that timeline maybe is a little bit skewed. I would say maybe he just had an off game in one of these series. Um, but yeah, we need to stop talking about like, oh, how hurt is Steph? Or what? I, to me, I think he's fine. I think it's just sometimes when he has a rough game, people wonder if he's not fully himself. I think there's a difference between still hurt and playing hurt and not fully being back and having the rhythm of someone who is, you know, really in the groove of having played a lot recently. I think Steph is still not playing at 100% Steph, not because he's playing hurt, but because he still hasn't been back for that many games after being out for a considerable amount of time. And you can hold judgment on that to say he should be back at 100% himself now. He's had enough games to get his legs back, to get his conditioning back. But that's different than playing hurt. I don't think that's the case. I think he's still just kind of trying to knock some of that rust off. But if you're talking about injuries, to me, the Warriors, the bigger factor is that they played the last few games without Andre Iguodala, which, you know, laugh if you want to about the fact that he was, you know, given an, an NBA Finals MVP a couple of years back, largely for just being the guy who guarded LeBron. But that guy is insanely valuable to this team, and they are not the Warriors without Iggy. They're just not. I, I can't argue with that. And <clears throat> one more thing about Steph Curry real quick is – I think people would have gave him the benefit of the doubt if he didn't show up back for the first game of the playoffs. And then, you know, he went on that shooting streak and he was shimmying all over the place and, you know, feeling himself. And I think that's why a lot of people point to the bad game and say, you know what, like you can't really blame injury. The guy was like all over the court, you know, putting it in the Rockets face. So I can't really feel bad for him or say that, oh, maybe he's playing hurt. Like he looked perfectly fine when he was knocking down shots and feeling himself. So I understand it from that standpoint, too. And, you know, you know, maybe we should just come to the realization that, you know, Steph Curry can have off nights, especially shooting. Like, I know that's crazy to say. But that can happen. And so I think the narrative about him being still hurt, 
I get it, but at the same time, when you're flaunting yourself and you're feeling yourself on the courts, when you're making shots, as opposed to maybe when you're not, and then using the injury card too, I, I kind of want to walk that back from earlier this week when we were talking about maybe he is still hurt or maybe he is playing hurt. Um, the confidence that he's got out there when he is making shots makes me leads me to believe that maybe it's just more so an off night or a bad night shooting rather than him playing hurt. I, uh, I saw a fun hypothetical while we're talking Warriors Rockets here uh, on Twitter earlier this morning, and I was wondering your thoughts, if you think this is a good idea or bad idea. Knowing that Chris Paul is sitting out game six and the Warriors are going to be playing in you know, win-or-die mode on their own home floor, everybody's essentially at this point saying, all right, Warriors, Warriors are winning game six. Rockets don't have a chance. Would have been slim with Paul in the lineup. Now that he's out, it's going to game seven. Knowing that, do the Rockets, does Mike D'Antoni just say, all right, you know what, DNP rest for James Harden in game six. We're throwing game six, game six away. And instead of using James Harden and trying to have Harden do everything in a game six that they're probably going to lose anyway and then have an exhausted James Harden who played game six without CP3 coming into game seven, do you just rest Harden and throw away the towel in game six and put everything, all the chips on the table for game seven instead of using Harden and probably overusing him, you know, like 40% usage rate or something like that in game six. So instead of an exhausted Harden coming into game seven after a losing effort, you have a fully rested Harden and hopefully also get CP3 back. You think that's a good idea, bad idea? That's interesting. This is what I'll say. I think taking it to an account of... Okay, you go out in game six, you see what happens in the first quarter. If you end up getting scraped in the first quarter and you're down 15 or you're down 12, 13, 14 points and it's like, all right, this is already an uphill battle after the first quarter. You can see maybe maybe saying, you know what, James Harden, take a seat. Um, we're just going to ride this one out. I don't know if I like the idea of just throwing away a game, especially a potential clincher. And I get it. Oracle is impossible to play in as a road team, especially in the playoffs. I totally get that. But the Rockets have already won a game there in this series. The Rockets also beat the Warriors at Oracle in the regular season. Like they've proven that they can do that. But it's a different story and a different animal coming into that where it's a a, close, a potential closeout game for you and a win to survive game for the Warriors. I, th- I think I'm. I think I'm with you though. I wouldn't. I wouldn't throw in the towel before the game even started by resting Harden. Like you said, I would probably you know play it out, play all my starters going into the first quarter and see what happens. See if they can survive that initial punch because you assume the Warriors are going to come out in the first quarter with insane amounts of energy. And if it's harnessed and the Warriors aren't turning the ball over like they've been doing a lot in this series then can the Warriors or can the Rockets withstand that first huge rush that the Warriors make and keep it even at the at, and you know maybe it's the first quarter maybe it's halftime if you're down 20 at halftime I think you sit hard in the second half same for game seven I can see that and you know I, I I don't think I can argue with that too and I think the one thing that the Rockets will have to wait and see and play out is style too obviously you don't have Chris Paul and you don't want to be playing a uh, a marathon match with the Warriors the way that they play uh with their pace but at the same time like if Eric Gordon can come out and put up 25 points like he did off the bench uh, in game five 
and consistently knock down the three, I think the Rockets have at least a fighting chance with James Harden out there as well. But I think it makes sense to take that first push in the first quarter, see where you're at. And then if you feel like that there's no shot, you've got a chance to come back into this game or potentially win this game, then I think I, I wouldn't put it past D'Antoni to say, you know what, let's rest Harden a little bit and let's just throw this out there and put all of our chips on the table for game seven. I think that makes a lot of sense too. And you have to think about the fact that now without Paul, like Mark uh, or Mike D'Antoni is going to have to play somebody else because he only went seven deep in game five. You mentioned Eric Gordon. Gordon had a big game off the bench for them, and they needed every single point that he got him. And he played, I think, like close to 30 minutes off the bench. Gerald Green played, I don't know, 15, 17, something like that. And that was it. So you take out CP3, and now your rotation is down to six. So unless you're ready to play a playoff game with only six guys, D'Antoni's going to have to go to his bench with somebody else. Bob Mute's been struggling in these playoffs. Ryan Anderson's been a complete ghost and a non-factor. Like, he's going to have to use somebody else that he's not ready to rely on or certainly wasn't ready to rely on in these last couple of games that they've played, which to me I think tips the scale even further towards the Rockets have no chance in game six. Yeah, you got to tap Gerald Green on the shoulder too and say, dude, don't chuck up 17 shots in the ga- in the first two quarters of this game coming up because we know how Gerald Green knocks down 1-3 and then he starts feeling himself and takes eight more shots without passing, so... I don't know. It's going to be an uphill battle for the Rockets. It'll be interesting to see what they decide to do. But I think the one thing that could be sort of an X factor for the Rockets is trying to slow the pace down at Oracle, take the fans out of the game, especially early. If you can rely on, I know it's going to be hard without Chris Paul, but rely more so on James Harden in his isolation game, slow things down and let him take over. I, I think that's the best opportunity for the Rockets to have a chance to win this game. You try to play the marathon game with the Warriors, and I just don't think that's going to work, especially especially without Chris Paul. All right, well, so we should probably move on to some Bulls stuff soon, but, I mean, real quick, we haven't even talked a whole lot of uh, Cavs-Celtics, which is the game six we got on deck tonight. Do the Celtics close it out on the road and finally get a road win, or does LeBron force game seven? I think we're, I think we're getting to game seven. There too. I would say so, too. I think so, too. Just the way the the way that LeBron looked in Game Five says a lot about the team that he's got around him, which is just absolutely garbage. And the I I hate that narrative, well, by the way. Okay, and to look at him and see that literally he's got to go out and drop 40, 45, potentially fifty in order for them to even stay in the game, I think is kind of crazy. The, the Cavaliers as a whole, just watching that team and watching the way that they have to operate and some of those old guys, I just it, it's it's such garbage to watch. And outside of LeBron, who literally is going to have to drag this team past the Celtics for two more games in order just to get to the finals, I think it's I think it's kind of crazy. I think this is probably going to go game seven. So so you and I both think that we're getting two game sevens. I think so. I, I really, do. I really think so. I think that not only with Chris Paul being out, but then getting a game seven too. We'll see what happens with LeBron tonight. But and what do you think? What do you think we're getting for the finals? Oh, man, two game sevens. Which which two teams are you taking in game seven? I already told you. I can't my bet my, my answer. My answer 
Warrior Celtics. I think that's what it's going to be. I think I think LeBron is going to manage to push it to Game Seven, but the Celtics have played so well at home throughout these playoffs, and I think LeBron's just going to give up. And that's not a knock on LeBron. That's not like a LeBron hater thing. I just think he's going to re- he's going to figure out in Game Seven that th- he doesn't have enough, and it will it he'll look better leaving Cleveland this summer if he couldn't even get that team to the finals. That's true. It'll look it'll look better for LeBron if he leaves and says I couldn't even drag this group to the finals, let alone can actually like give the give ourselves a real chance to win. Couldn't even get past the Celtics. This is, you know, I'm done. I got you your title, I'm done. I'm out. So I think LeBron forces that game seven, and I think the Celtics win that game seven. I still do not trust Harden and or Chris Paul at all in big games. You know, CP3 shimmying in Steph's face in a game that maybe not many people expected the Rockets to win. Cool, good for you. This is going games. This is going seven games. I'll take the Warriors over the Rockets in a game seven situation regardless of where they're playing that game. I think it's going to be Warriors-Celtics. Yeah, real quick, I think the Warriors are going to pull off that series, even if it does go to Game 7 and they have to go to Houston. Um, I I just, I, like I said, the way I can't bet against LeBron is the same way I can't bet against the Warriors. And even in that Toronto series, I still go back to saying that like LeBron still, I, I'm curious to see if LeBron still has a few tricks up his sleeve in order to just drag this team to the finals but I think you make a good case like if LeBron pushes this to game seven or if even even if they get knocked off tonight like he pushes it to a game seven or gets knocked off tonight I think it's going to look better on him to say you know what if I do want to leave Cleveland Cleveland fans can't really be pissed off at me I mean look at the team that they put around him granted at the trade deadline, LeBron was pissed and wanted a completely different team. They did that, and look at the guys that they went out and acquired. They've done jack shit in this playoff. So I think I'm with you, too. It will look better for LeBron if he does decide and want to leave Cleveland at this summer if they don't end up in the finals. It kind of gives him, I wouldn't say really a way out, but more so just another reason why he would want to go somewhere else because you look at that team, like outside of the the number eight pick that Cleveland's going to have coming in, that team is just awful and like I can't see like LeBron wanting to come back and run it back with all those guys who did nothing for him in the playoffs so far so I don't know it's it's going to be a lot of big decisions and it's going to be not to mention the fact that he's ready to to rid himself of Dan Gilbert who's you know pro-Trump political leanings have just like I think that's the last straw for LeBron I'd like I think he's so ready to have Dan Gilbert out of his life I and I I guess I couldn't blame him either um, let's get to some Bulls stuff here, though. So you're taking Warriors and Celtics, both going to Game 7. I'm taking... Yep. I, I can't bet against LeBron, so I'm still going Warriors-Cavs at Game 7. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I, until it doesn't, I can't stop betting for LeBron as opposed to against him. No, that's fair. I mean, that's the logical That's the logical bet to make. So let's get to some Bulls stuff real quick. Obviously, want to take some questions, but... The one thing that I want to congratulate one of the Bulls players on is Lowry Markkinen. First team, all-rookie, pretty big award. The The margin of votes, too, was pretty, pretty big. Between I know he was, I think, the fifth person with the fifth most votes for that first team. I think Dennis Smith Jr. was sixth, and I think there was a gap of almost 100 votes between him and Lowry Markkinen. So shout-out to Lowry Markkinen for making first team all rookie that first team all rookie team has got a pretty good squad 
Um, I'm excited. I, I think he deserved it this year. He played really well, and it, it should make fans like this is the opportunity. You talk about you want to talk about all the negatives about this team and the stigmas that are around this team when it comes to drafting or rebuilding. Blah blah blah. If you want to look at a bright spot, let's look at Lowry Markkinen. His poise, the way he carries himself, especially throughout this rookie year, with all the ups and downs that this team's gone through in year one of a rebuild. Um, I think a texter, one of our listeners, brought up a really good point, too, is, you know, as a potential superstar, you look at his game and the way he focuses himself and brought up the point, and this may or may not do anything for you, Matt, but I think it's an interesting point, is like, the guy doesn't drink, the guy doesn't party, uh, the guy doesn't run his mouth, he works hard, he focuses on himself, he's a fun guy, and he's a guy that's that seems like this fan base could really latch on to, and I think the skills on the court have presented themselves times 100 this year, and he's he's so much better than I think a lot of Bulls fans thought he was going to be, and I think that should be the most surprising, the most positive part of year one in this rebuild, and obviously that it's kind of an obvious thing, but him getting voted to the all-rookie team on this terrible Bulls team, I think says a lot about his game and what he could potentially be in the future. So congratulations again to Lowry Markkinen. I'm really impressed with his game over just year one, and I'm excited to see how he trains this summer and comes back into year two. Yeah, dude, absolutely deserving for Markkinen to be first-team all-rookie. Congrats to him, as you said. I think other than... Mitchell, who the Utah Jazz, you know, couldn't be more happy with right now and the fact that they got him where they did. Behind Mitchell, Lowry at seven might be I mean, you could probably also put Kyle Kuzma into that can conversation about guys being more valuable than where they were taken in that twenty seventeen NBA draft, because I mean he at least in year one looked just as valuable to them as their number two pick in Lonzo Ball, if not more so. And I think Markkinen at seven was obviously not maybe as big of a steal as Kuzma all the way at 30 or wherever he went and, and Mitchell at 13 or 12. But uh, Markkinen probably deserved to go top three, top four. And the Bulls got him at seven. And you're, you're absolutely right when you say, I mean, unequivocally, the best bright spot in what was a very tough season for Bulls fans to endure was Lowry Markkinen. We saw some nice things from Chris Dunn when he was healthy. Zach Levine is still a huge question mark and a huge worry coming into a contract offseason. We saw some nice things from unexpected guys like David Nwaba. Bobby Portis had a good bounce back year. So did Denzel. But Markkinen, by and large, is the best thing that this Bulls team has going for him right now. And it's nice to see him get some recognition that he absolutely I'm, I'm totally with you. So I'm very excited to see what year two brings for his game. And I, I look at it this way, too, talking about just the core guys real quick in Levine, Dunn, and Markkinen. I don't think it's out of the question. I think there's an article written earlier this week when the all-defensive teams came out. I don't think it's out of the question to say that maybe if we're talking about goals for Chris Dunn over the next three, four years... I feel like that's something that would be a huge accomplishment in terms of his game and developing. His game was be, would be being named to an all-defensive team in the NBA. And I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility And what we saw from him in the stretches that he was able to stay healthy and stay on the court. Obviously, he had a bunch of different kind of weird freak accidents that happened that limited some of his play and then also at the end of the season uh, kind of shut him down. So 
you know, full year, maybe in a couple years as far as his development goes, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to say that Chris Dunn could potentially be an all-defensive team player um, in the next few years and maybe use that as a goal for him moving forward. I I would take it a step further. Not only would I say that it's not out of the realm of possibility, I would say that knowing that the Bulls value Dunn so highly coming into that 2016 draft and really wanted him then and almost traded Butler to the Celtics and or the Wolves to get done with a top lottery pick in that 2016 draft, that they valued him as a guy who could turn into an elite defensive guard in the league. They knew offensively he was a project, and he still is. We've seen already with like his steal rate this season when he was healthy and playing and how that was ranked near you know top five in the league, top three in the league, that potential is there. So I would say, given the fact that they wanted done so badly, and he was a part of that trade where they traded away their superstar to start over, the Bulls are banking on Dunn becoming an all-defensive team kind of guard. I mean, I would say it will be a disappointment if, assuming that Dunn is around for the long haul, it would be a disappointment to the front office if he is not an all-defensive team candidate and winner on a yearly basis. That is why they wanted him so badly, and that is why they brought him in. Project offensively, defensively, potential to be elite, and he needs to be for his value in that Butler deal to translate. I think I would take it one step farther, too, to say that in order for this to work in terms of talking about this, in terms of Lowry Markin and Zach Levine and Chris Dunn on the floor, using those as your core parts of your rebuild, you could throw number seven pick in this upcoming draft, too, as part of that as well. But in order for this to really work, you need Chris Dunn to be at his best on his defensive side of the ball. And that ceiling, like as Bulls fans and as the front office is sitting there watching this happen over the next two or three years, in order for this to work, you need Chris Dunn to be... I wouldn't say you need him to be an elite defender, but pretty damn close to that because we saw what Zach Levine did this year. And you need somebody paired next to Zach Levine if he's going to be here for a long time. And if he's going to still run out there and look like he's never played defense in his life, you need a guy next to him that can help switch and help cover and be a guy that's going to be near the top tier of elite defenders. And I don't think, like you said... I don't think that's crazy to say in one year of what we saw from Chris Dunn. And obviously coming out of college, too, he was known to be a great defender. So that's something also, too, to keep in mind. But I think it's fair to say that if this Bulls rebuild is going to work and this team is going to be good, you need Chris Dunn to be a great defender alongside Zach Levine saying, and that's not to say Zach Levine can't become a good defender. It's just saying like in order for it to work where it's at now. I mean, you you can say (laughs) that right now. You you can absolutely say that right now is that there's no signs for Levine to become at some point in his career, even a decent defender based on the evidence. That's totally reasonable statement. The other element, the other factor there talking about masking Levine's defensive weaknesses is you you need Dunn to become a premier elite level defensive point guard in this league and he's on his way and the three and D wing on the other side you need to sandwich Levine between two premier defenders and that's why the Bulls keep talking about a versatile three and D wing that they need to find in this draft whether it's somebody that they take at seven or at 22 and if you know they don't if it's neither of those guys whatever the whatever the solution is 
that is absolutely part of the problem and part of the equation right now. If you really want to bank on keeping Levine and Dunn and have them as your backcourt moving forward, Dunn needs to be an elite defender, and the guy playing at the three needs to be an elite defender. You know what's crazy, too, about Levine coming out of college is that he wasn't hit. One of the biggest weaknesses of his game really wasn't his defense. I feel like this has turned since he's become an NBA player. It's kind of crazy. You look at, I go back and I, I read all the scouting reports before Zach Levine had gotten drafted. And I think one of the common themes that I was expecting to see was a part of his weaknesses was, yeah, he can't play any defense. Well, that wasn't the case at UCLA. I think it was more so now in the reports that you read and the, the scouting reports that you read from him coming out of UCLA. I think it's more so about applying himself on defense. And so that's why, like, when people knock Levine's defense, which it is, it's brutal. And uh, we've said it multiple times here. But I wonder if it's more of a case of applying himself on every play on the defensive side of the ball. We talked about multiple times there's been videos cut up, especially from this season, just in the 25 games he's played, where he gives up on plays. He doesn't help switch. He doesn't come to the basket. I can remember one play specifically. It happened three or four times. I think it was in the Knicks game um, when Lowry had that crazy dunk. He continues to give up. You know, a guy switches or a guy breaks to the basket and tries to drive to the hole, and Zach Levine takes two steps and goes, never mind, just kind of stands there and watches. I think for a lot of that, I think that's going to be big, the biggest part of his game because like to say that all of a sudden he just lost his defensive prowess and not to say that it was anything big at UCLA but I felt like it, okay you could give him a little bit more slack if that was one of the weaknesses coming out of college but a lot of the scouting reports don't even like don't bring up that hey, yeah this guy's a terrible defender he's going to need tons of work on that side of the ball that wasn't really the case so maybe I'm thinking that Zach Levine just needs to apply himself a little bit more on the defensive end of the ball and we'll see if that happens like 25 games is a small sample size and the time that he spent in the Timberwolves system too is is a small sample size as well I'd like to see what he does in a full season and maybe maybe playing next to a guy in Chris Dunn who is defensive minded will help Zach Levine and I would hope so so I'm crossing my fingers there as well I just thought it was interesting that a lot of his scouting reports don't even bring up the fact that he was a garbage defender like a lot of people talk about his game being and maybe that just happens when you go to the next level I don't know but it made me curious at least to just go back and read his scouting reports and I think another part of it could be that even as recently as Levine did come into the league and was getting scouted uh, at you know coming into the NBA draft it doesn't seem like it was that long ago when it was only what you know three or four years ago the scouting and then the drafting even even as even that far back there wasn't quite yet this level of obsession and high value on two-way players at his position it was oh this kid who's like a combo you know shooting guard small forward can really score the basketball and that obsession with the three and D wing was just as Levine's draft class was coming in like becoming more of a thing but it certainly wasn't at the level that it is now where that is the type of player that not only John Paxson is coveting but everybody every team across the league is looking for in these drafts is people who are those combo wing players who not only can score the ball play elite defense and have the length and athleticism to play defense guarding you know one through four and that's certainly not what Levine has but talking about you know the the fact that that was kind of missing from his scouting I think is even as recently as four years ago when Levine was getting scouted that wasn't as big of a thing as it is now so I guess I gotta walk that back a little bit I shouldn't say every draft board said that he wasn't a terrible defender 
or I guess they didn't use those words, but one specifically that maybe I can bring up is Draft Express. Uh, also, side note, real quick, RIP to Draft Express. That is the most disappointing thing that ever happened. Was when it's a, tra- it's a travesty, man. ESPN just bought <sighs> them out and aren't actually using. Them. I know, and it's terrible. And in, <laughs> if we're going to talk about that real quick. It's more so they just ate up the competition because you think about Draft Express. I remember when I was in college using this to write college basketball articles. Like Draft Express was a great source, not only just for their content. The video yes. breakdowns they do are fantastic. And that's what I think I miss most. So, okay, but side note, Levine, there's two things that I just wanted to read to you real quick coming out. So this is on Zach Levine's defense. Levine is simply not a good defender at this point in time. He's quick feet and hands, but is not fundamentally sound, rarely getting in an actual defensive stance and showing average intensity at best. Sporting average size, length, and strength, Levine will have to improve his toughness and effort level in the NBA to not emerge as a liability on this end of the floor. That's exactly what I just said. I, I feel like his ability to apply himself on the defensive end is is not seen from the most part especially when he's been with the Bulls so that is a constant it's not to say that he can't be an average defender in the NBA and I think at this point in time that's what we would hope for from Levine I think that and then there's also something about his game too on the offensive side that I thought I felt was interesting so this is coming out from the draft and obviously things have changed a little bit but still it, it kind of parallels in the same of what we saw Levine over in these 25 games and it says where Levine struggled this season was when he was forced to take more responsibility upon himself and create offense in the half court in pick and roll and in one-on-one situations he's just an average ball handler as he doesn't do a great job of reading defenses and playing at different speeds and struggles badly finishing through contact around the basket particularly with his left hand so I think that's interesting and alone in itself The positive here was his catch-and-shoot ability, his ability to come off of screens and knock down shots. I think that's something that we we really love outside of his athleticism. But it's funny, like, those those knocks at draft time for Zach Levine, what, two, three years ago, are still ones you're seeing as as uphill battles for Levine's game and weaknesses in Levine's game that I think could be changed with a little bit of coaching. Um, But... It's it's kind of funny that those parallels are still the same now, three years into the league. And it's not like Levine is the only guy who's guilty of having that as a weakness to his game, making the transition from co- you know college amateur to the pros. A lot of people are caught red-handed on a daily basis, not trying on defense. It is a disease through the NBA right now, and it's because it's an offensive league. It is a league that is usually won by teams that score score a lot and score efficiently. Offensive talent is still placed at a higher premium than defensive talent. Even even despite this new obsession with with, you know, two-way players at the wing, it's still you're going to take a you're going to take a player with high offensive upside over a player with high defensive upside 9 times out of 10. And you know, Levine, that's the weakness of his game right now. That's just the state of the facts. I, I don't know if he can get any better, but the whole lack of effort thing, he's not alone. That's in true. That. And I'm not saying like there's any lack of effort in terms of conditioning. Like you watch, like if any of you follow him on Instagram, it's literally every day. The guy's out there training, showing videos, trying to prove to Bulls fans that, hey, man, I'm worth a lot of the money that the Bulls are going to potentially give me this summer. And I want to prove it to fans there. So I appreciate that on that side of the ball or that side of 
his work ethic and just showing fans that he wants to improve. We'll see once he gets on the floor what happens next year. But uh, definitely interesting. All right, before we wrap up the show, I want to just get to a voicemail and a couple quick questions, Matt. What's up, Jordan? Matt? Uh, nice to call in. My name is Matt. I'm from the Northwest uh, suburbs of Chicago. Uh, long-time listener. love the podcast. I need to ask. I know that Matt has been harping on this, saying that there's not going to be a trade. The Bulls are not going to move up. And if they do, it's going to be some stupid, ridiculous package. Um, up until the news about Luca maybe not being of interest at two or three or possibly even four, at this point, what do we think as far as the Bulls trading up, possibly going four or five? If they had achieved fifth spot in the first place, they wouldn't even be talking about this. But what do we think the likelihood is now? If uh, Luca's a one through three player, and obviously we're we're most interested in a small forward, um, would it be plausible to try and figure something out with Zach? Or maybe trying to keep him and trying to package Chris Dunn and maybe playing Luca at the one, or trying to fight Luca at three and obviously not touching Howard Markinen. But what do you think? What do you think as far as the likelihood? And if it's possible, do you think they should even explore that to begin with? Uh, would love to know. So uh, looking forward to your answer. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the voicemail, Matt. Um, yeah, I have been harping on. The concept, my belief, my staunch belief, the Bulls aren't trading up in this draft. It's not going to happen. Um, you, you bring up an interesting hypothetical about Luka not being of interest to the teams in the top three, top four. Uh, I think Jordan and I have touched on that recently. you got to take every report you hear this, this month between draft lottery and the draft itself with a grain of salt. I mean, until the trades actually happen, I don't believe them to happen. And that's, you know, there's the factor that Paxson has spoken repeatedly about being excited to add two players in this draft. They're Yeah, they're disappointed that they fell to seven instead of jumping into the top three. They were banking on a top three, maybe top five pick this year, and it's not happening. That sucks. But they still feel good about getting a good player at seven. And they feel good about getting that first round pick for for Nico earlier this season. And they feel good about adding another young talented player at 22 Casey Johnson essentially said the same thing in a recent mailbag Paxson feels good with where they are Paxson was asked after the draft lottery happened do you envision yourselves maybe trying to package those picks and maybe a player to trade up into the top three and he said no I mean he added a few more sentences of explanation to that no (laughs) but the answer to the question was no I (laughs) no. Mike, you know, I'm sorry. I'm I'm sleep deprived. I'm a little cranky right now. I'm not taking this aggression out on you, Matt. And I, we appreciate the the phone call, the voicemail. But I, I I don't care about what hypotheticals and rumors and reports people are reading right now. Oh, the Suns are apparently listening to offers for the number one. I don't I don't give a damn. I don't give a flying f. Until it happens, it doesn't happen. You could talk about hypotheticals until you're blue in the face. Listen to what Paxson had to say. Listen to what they've had to say since they got the Nico pick about how excited they are to add two players in this draft. 
It's not it, it and then and then think about what player what teams that are in the position to trade down will be demanding to do so. And think about the lack of things that the Bulls have to offer outside of the 7 pick and the 22 pick. And that surely is not enough to get it done. Just throwing those two picks together. It is not enough to to get it done if you're talking about the Bulls moving up. It's just it's not I'm sorry. And I will come on the show, as I've said, and apologize profusely to not only you, Jordan, and to everybody out there who has said, well, what if? Or, well, I heard this rumor. And I will say, hey, guess what? Y'all y'all were right to believe the rumors and the hype and all the talk, and it happened. Cool. Let's talk about it now, and I apologize. Until that happens, everybody fuck <laughs> off. It's not happening. All right, I will say this, too. You brought up Casey Johnson's point, which I think is important when you think about people that are close to the front office, you think about what they hear on a day-in and day-out basis. And I think there's some truth to saying that they feel comfortable at number seven. And I, I would throw this out there, too. I know I was somebody that said you at least have to explore the options. So what Matt was saying was, you know, would the Bulls even entertain this idea? Of course, they're going to pick up the phone. And if there are teams at the top at three or four, like we were talking about that potentially would want to move down. Of course, they're going to pick up the phone and figure out what they're asking for, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a move made. Um, somebody else had brought this up on Twitter real fast. It was just talking about uh, Luka Doncic and his situation and saying like about attitude and character. And that's something that I had brought up a couple times earlier this week on this episode. And people were we're saying, like, I, I've never heard, even heard of that. I haven't seen a report. And it goes in along the lines of you have to be careful about the rumors that you're reading and believing what's true and what's not. So there is this this guy that's uh, on the radio in Arizona, pretty big station, 98.7 in Arizona. He had written an article. And I think this is the most ridiculous thing ever, and I don't believe it for a second. Um, he's a verified guy. He said that he had a anonymous... A talent evaluator go out and write a scouting report for Luka Doncic and at the back half of that which it was just mostly bullet points was like three or four that said oh he's not a team player his teammates don't like him blah 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 but at the same time I, th- I think I told you this and I told the people that were tweeting at us this too it's like okay quote-unquote anonymous evaluator could literally be anybody it could be this guy just making up a scouting report for all we know because he doesn't want Luka Doncic at number one he wants DeAndre Ayton and if you (laughs) all it takes is a little bit of scrolling through this guy's feed to understand that he really doesn't want them to take Luka they he wants them to take DeAndre Ayton so that's could could be where where this report was coming from quote-unquote report so just be careful with what you're reading over the next three or four weeks leading up to the draft and take everything with a grain of salt. Now, keeping that in mind, I think it's important to at least entertain the idea of what it would cost, not saying that you have to just automatically say, yes, it's a deal, but think about it. To move up three or to move up three spots to a draft that has been touted all season long as super top-heavy, very full in terms of one through seven or one through eight and the, the talent-changing um, players at the top in the one one through three or one through four, it's going to cost you a lot. Like teams like Atlanta, who need who need a ton of help, they're going to want a lot in return. Obviously, the two picks are going to be an automatic that they're going to want, and they're probably going to want a core piece from you. Um, so at that point, you've got to make a decision. I don't think the front office is ready to say, you know what, yeah, one of these core pieces, we could get rid of them because we we love the guy at one through three so much that we have to have him. I think that's the only case is if the deal is right and the Bulls really feel like they, mu- they can't not have 
whatever guy it is, whether it's Marvin Bagley or Doncic, if he falls or whoever it is, if they feel like they would be making a colossal mistake by not moving up and taking this guy and they absolutely fall in love with him, I think that's the only real way that they're going to trade up. Obviously, I would love for them to at least entertain the idea, but keep all of that in mind when we're talking about trading up. I, I think now it's it's more of a solidified thing for me at least that they won't trade up obviously they'll entertain the idea but Casey Johnson saying that they feel comfortable and a lot of other places saying that they feel comfortable at number seven in drafting there leads me to believe yeah that's probably not going to be something they want to do and having to package one of their core players in order to just move up for three or four spots yeah okay are we are we done talking about this now <laughs> until something else happens until another rumor happens yeah talk, uh, talk, yes. to, talk to me when a trade oh until another rumor happens great can't wait for that <laughs> oh all oh, the atlanta hawks are apparently taking fo- oh my god i don't care don't care yeah and so I was, i'll say this too i was just telling you this off air and i'll share it with our listeners as well I had a buddy of mine text me a room, a quote unquote rumor that said, oh, the Atlanta Hawks want to draft Trey Young at number three. And I literally just sent back to him. I said, that would be the most ridiculous thing ever. I said, it's, it might not be out of the realm of possibility that Atlanta likes Trey Young, but taking him at number three, come on, let's not get ridiculous here. And he's like, well, Trey Young liked the tweet. Well, of course, Trey Young liked the tweet. Trey Young wants to get drafted number one. Every player in this draft wants to get drafted as high as possible. Not only the money, but the... Every guy in this draft wants to go number one, wants to go number two, number three, as high as possible in this draft. So, of course, he's going to like a report that tags him in it, that's something like that. So, just everything you read over the next three or four weeks, take with a grain of salt. And There should be a punishment (laughs) for people who spread rumors as if they are facts. That's it drives me friggin crazy Honestly, we need like an nba twitter somebody that works for Boy, twitter. I, guess, I guess matt will, i guess matt was wrong looks like the suns might trade down oh it looks like memphis is listening to offers i'm not wrong yet a-holes i'm right <laughs> and i will be right we'll see about that this is this is absurd all right let, let's let's get to one more question before we wrap up uh this one is interesting and it's something that i hadn't really thought about yet um in the way that it's been laid out uh, this comes uh, via text from the 619. Assuming the Bulls hit on 7 and 22 with, let's say, Bamba and Hutchison, is it sustainable in today's salary cap to pay organically drafted young players to compete for a championship in their primes, say four to six years from now, best case scenario, with two supermax players, uh, in this case, Lowry and Bamba, two max players, Levine and Hutchison, and two close to max players, Chris Dunn and a 2019 draft pick. That's probably going to end up being a lottery pick as well. Interesting question here, Jordan. What are your what What are your thoughts on that? All right. Well, let's slow our roll for a minute. Hitting on seven. Yes, exactly. That 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 would be that would be <laughs> my first seven point and twenty two and saying that. Uh, <laughs> That Chandler Hutchinson is going to get a max level deal. Like, all right, let's let, let's let's rein it in a little bit. First of all, I, I think outside of guys like that you think about that are going to be like can't miss players, and I'm talking about like over the last three, four, five, six years, guys like Anthony Davis, where you knew like in the first couple of years, the dude after coming off his rookie deal is going to get a max level contract. Like that is just uh, a, that was just fact. The guy that the Bulls take at number seven, I can't really say is fact that they're going to turn out to be a super like a super max or a max type of contract level in that type of player. And I don't think you should be really necessarily worried about that. So I, I get get it from the point the standpoint that you can't pay everybody. 
but I would more so like to be able to pay the guys that you do draft that you organically develop in like in cases like Lowry Markkinen and if they do take Muhammad Bamba at seven some of those guys I think have potential and like not every guy is going to get the max deal and I think part of that too is if you develop your guys from inside and they come up in their development and things happen things go more positively than I think maybe some people thought you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility where guys are going to say, you know what, maybe I'll take a little bit of a, a salary cut to stay with a team that's winning, that's being competitive, that is potentially going to an NBA Finals or going to the playoffs and being high in the East every single year. I think those are conversations that need to happen as well. But I think it's getting a little ridiculous to the point where if we're talking about guys four or six years down the road, in order to get a max level deal, I think we just need to step back and say, first, let's hit on a star first, which I don't think we can necessarily point to and say that the Bulls have right now. Let's wait until we get a star and concern ourselves with that when the Bulls are competitive. Yeah, and then I would also say to this texter that for the first part of the question, you, you know, assuming that you have two super max deals, one you're assuming an awful lot that Lowry and whoever the Bulls take at seven are both going to be eligible for super max deals because the super max is the DPE, the designated player exception. They are, you know, the super max is the colloquial term for that specific kind of contract, which. Do you know the qualifications for getting such a contract? Because only teams that draft those players, as as our texter is alluding to, can do it. But you're talking about players that either win Defensive Player of the Year, MVP, or have in two of three seasons making an all-defensive team or the all-NBA team. Do you think that Markkinen and our seventh pick are both going to qualify for that in your four- to six-year window? That is a very much so best-case scenario. It's. I mean, like, I. I feel like you're putting the cart before the horse and worrying about something that is not going to come to fruition. I. I, I mean, I think at some point in his career, Markkinen has the potential to be an All NBA player. I think that potential is there with Markkinen. We don't know who the Bulls will add at seven, and even still, the qualifications for the DPE are not easy, and so. If, the Bulls might not even have one player who qualifies for such a contract. Two, I mean, off the top of my head, I don't even know if, if a team can offer, if a team can have two players on a DPE contract simultaneously, or if, only, if you're only allowed to have one. We'll have to check that. Um, but because the DPE is also like a 35% of your team's total salary cap, so having two would be 70 so you're paying two guys on your roster 70% of your total cap space on a, on a yearly basis. So you have 30% of your available cap room to spread out to the remaining 13 guys on a roster. That that would probably create not only some friction in the locker room, but a situation where it's basically what the Blackhawks are going through with Jonathan Taze and Patrick Gain right now. It's like, all right, well, we're paying these two star players a hell of a lot of money, and we have no money left for anybody else. Um, it's a tricky situation, but it's one that I do not think Bulls need fans need to worry themselves with right now because the qualifications for that Supermax deal are not easy to get. They're not easy to unlock. Look, and I like this question, too, because the texter brings up a couple other points, too. 
case study being in the Wizards with John Wall, Bradley Beal, and Otto Porter. Um, another question, like kind of a follow-up question to this was, will the Bulls even have an opportunity to sign a free agent to a max level deal if you want to bring in a guy from outside uh, adding to this core? And I think that's where things get tricky. And think about it. The track record of the Bulls being able to hit on free agents is not good. So if, I, if I'm sitting here saying that if they do hit on these guys and you, you have the opportunity to sign them to big deals, then you want to do that more so than trying to rely all of your cap flexibility on going out and getting free agents. I think just the track record that this front office has with free agents and hitting and missing, it, it, it speaks for itself. So I think the best opportunity is to be able to, like he had said, hit on number seven, hit on number 22, and develop Lowry Markinen. See what Levine gets this summer and develop Chris Dunn. Like, I understand the question here, but I think, like you had said, I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves in terms of um, worrying about having to pay some of these young guys should they hit. Let's worry about them hitting first and then worry about the cap flexibility, the the salary, uh, the max level salaries that some of these guys are going to get. And look, like, there's things that the Bulls can do. Say that this all does work out and happen, which would be completely ridiculous, and I would be completely surprised if all of this happened. But there are things that can happen. Like, the Bulls can trade one of these pieces for quality other things For when they decide if and when they don't want to pay one of these guys. Other teams will be out there. They can get assets. So developing your guys on rookie deals can be a benefit or, you know, having to make these decisions should a lot of these players end up working out. The Bulls can find ways to continue to pay their best players and also maybe get some assets for guys that they think that they might not be able to pay if and when or if this should ever happen to where the Bulls are are paying two super maxes of max contract. Like I, I would I would be blown away if something like that happened. And and the homegrown talent that the Texture is talking I mean, like the Warriors are the perfect case study. Steph just signed the Super Max and his contract is over two hundred million dollars. And the other thing that you mentioned, you know, bringing in a you know an expensive free agent in addition to that, they got KD. KD just declined his option for next season, which was going to pay him $26 million. He made $25 million uh, this season, and many believe that he declined so that he can rework his contract again so that the Warriors can have a bit more flexibility to keep some of the other role players. But the other two guys that they get credit for drafting and developing that have turned into superstar players in their own right, or at least star players, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green, are on very team-friendly deals right now. Clay, t- Clay signed his in 2014, four years, $69 million, making an average of you know, $16.5 million, $17 million over four seasons. He'll be an unrestricted free agent next summer. Draymond Green signed his in 2015, I believe. Um, yeah, and it was five years, $82 million, making on average $16 million a year. Both of those players are worth more than that. And those are the players that the the Warriors drafted and have developed. And it is best case scenario that the Warriors can afford a super max for Steph, free agent money for KD, and the other two star players that they developed are right now on contracts that are absolute steals. And we'll see in 2019 with Clay and in 2020 with Draymond if the chickens come home to roost and they say, it's come to this point in my career where I I deserve and I can earn more money than this somewhere else. Will they sacrifice money to keep that championship core together or will they take the money? 
And that, you know, that, but that is the way that it's being done right now for the Warriors. Homegrown talent, two of which very key important pieces of homegrown talent are making way less money than they're worth. The other team that I too just want to quickly bring up because you did bring up the Warriors and this might just be like it's in still in that processing phase and that would be the Boston Celtics. Look at what the Boston Celtics were able to do with the guys that they drafted. Terry Rozier, uh, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, uh, Marcus Smart. And obviously they brought in other pieces too to surround themselves. Obviously they got Gordon Hayward and they traded for Kyrie Irving. But still, those four guys, look at what they're doing in the playoffs. You're not you're playing without Kyrie and you're playing without Gordon Hayward. And yeah, you brought Al Horford in on a max level deal, but the the most important guys in this playoffs for that Celtics team right now are homegrown guys, the guys that they drafted that they took and that Danny Ainge and Brad Stevens have gotten a ton out of. So you look at teams around the league, I think you brought up the most important part is more times than not, teams that stay together and are great are homegrown talent more so than trying to piecemeal big-time free agents together. Obviously, LeBron did it with the Heat, but that's LeBron again. Um, but yeah, like homegrown talent seems to, if, if you are committed and your scouting team is great, homegrown talent seems to be working out for NBA teams more so than it is trying to piecemeal these free agents together and paying them these deals so the Celtics are another one that I would say look at that and see how they were doing and they're going to have some decisions to make too this summer as far as who they're going to pay and what what they have to do so a lot of teams get in this situation where you almost get too lucky like you almost get too many good players that you got to make decisions on whether or not you're going to pay them and what you're going to do with them so if you're looking at case studies the Warriors are a good one the Celtics are also a good one but uh, let's rein it in a little bit and let's wait until we yeah, actually see that we have a star. The point here is that for Bulls fans, these are worries that you should not be losing sleep over right now. <laughs> Absolutely. If that happens, all of a sudden the Bulls have a bunch of players that are max level kind of players, max caliber, max level caliber players, including maybe marketing and turning himself into a, a super max eligible player, making some all NBA teams. You, well, then great. That's good news. If that's the problem that the Bulls are facing in, you know, in like three or four years, then that's a good thing. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's a good problem to have. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. But, yeah, just don't, don't – let's not concern ourselves with that yet. Like, I would love for the Bulls to hit on 7-22 and 22 and everything that you're saying in this hypothetical happened and talking about that. But it's a good problem to have if you do have too many guys – that are valuable. There's things that the, the front office can do, and um, you've seen it too. There's other teams that have reshaped, reformed themselves because they've had too much talent going on. So it'll be interesting. But yeah, let's uh, let, let's wait till we hit on a star first before we start talking about uh, potentially what they're going to need to make. And obviously, Levine's going to be that first chip this summer to see how much really he is going to get and what the years and the terms are going going to look like uh, for him. So that's I think going to be the starting point for fans if you want to look at in terms of the salary and what the Bulls are going to have over the next two, three, four, five years. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it starts with Levine, and that's why myself and probably all Bulls fans out there are crossing their fingers and praying that the Bulls actually use the leverage they have with this uh, pretty depleted market this summer and sign Levine to not a full max deal, not even a, a four-year deal. I, I want to see a two- or three-year deal. I think it'll probably end up being a three-year deal. But if we can leave the Bulls' options open a little bit and not completely commit themselves financially to Levine, that would be a good first step to figure out after that who gets money, if they want to keep Bobby around on an extension, signing Dunn to an extension, signing Lowry to an extension. Step one is putting Levine on a decent deal 
and have him prove his worth. Well, that's going to about do it for us here on Locked On Bulls. Remember, we're live on Dash Radio, DashRadio.com, and the Dash Radio app on the Nothing But Net channel. We're live on Dash Radio every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central Time. That's tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central Time. Remember to follow us on social media at Locked On Bulls, at Jordan C. Malley, and at Bulls underscore Peck on Twitter. Like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Locked On Shy Bulls, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you find podcast you will find us 331-979-1369 is the line to call or text leave us your voicemails your texts your questions anything that you've got for us leave it for us there or on social media as well for matt peck for jordan malley chicago and bulls fans have a wonderful weekend the weather is going to be fantastic for jordan and matt we are out deuces locked on bulls a show for the most passionate fan base in the nba Hosts Jordan Malley and Matt Peck dive into the best Bulls news and stories around the NBA. Locked on Bulls is live on Dash Radio every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, starting at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central. For more content and to stay up to date, head over to LockedOnBulls.com, part of FanRag Sports.